Again, this is Genesis 11:27 through 12:5. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was, was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah was, died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Andrew. So welcome, everybody, especially for those of you who are new. And uh, Andrew saved a lot of work for me uh, because so what we're, what we're doing over these initial weeks here at Doxology is we're going over uh, what are we about? What's our identity as a church? So our, our typical way of preaching through the Bible here is we pick a book and we go through it verse by verse, line by line. Uh, but this fall, we're setting a foundation for what are we always going to be about as a church? And so what our mission or our purpose here as a church is simply to make disciples of Jesus Christ who live in light of the gospel. And so what that means is because Jesus has come and he's offered a way to know God by grace and he will come again and will dwell with him in glory and gladness, that changes how we live in the present. Like we should live very different lives and be very purposeful because of what Jesus has done and because of what Jesus will do in the future. And so that, that we looked at on week one and then what we're going through after that is, so how do we actually make that happen? How do we make disciples who live in light of the gospel? And so we've looked at uh, Jesus-centered worship, we've looked at Jesus-centered community, and today we're looking at Jesus-centered mission. Uh, so these are the things that no matter where our church is and whatever stage of life, we always have to be doing these things and standing on these things. So today we're looking at mission, and we're looking at mission and we're about mission because it's very easy both as an individual and as a church to be very me-centered, right? So that, that's just our default as human beings. And so whether it's here on Sunday or going throughout the week, it's just all about me, me, me. Uh, but what God is about is about he first enters into relationship with us, yes, so that we can know him, but then also this, so that we can invite other people into his goodness. And so we always want to be a church that's not just about ourselves, uh, but for about the people who are around us in our city, regardless of what, of what they believe. And so the passage that we're looking at today to look at this whole idea of mission, like living to be outward facing for other people, as you heard read, uh, comes from the story of Abraham in Genesis 12. And one of the reasons why we're choosing this passage to look at, one, because it's a great case study. It's a great case study of what does it mean to be on mission. Uh, but two, we, the, the leadership of doxology, we wanted to choose an Old Testament passage because I know there are a lot of you who are newer to the faith or who are checking things out. And a lot of times the Old Testament can seem very obscure 
It's like there's a lot of strange things here, and it seems like God's a different God in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. And so we chose an Old Testament passage to also show you how the Bible, it's not just a, a series of disjointed vignettes about how to live a moral life, uh, but the Bible is one narrative about what God has done and is doing to redeem us and to redeem the world through Jesus. It's just one story. And so we're going to see that in today's passage as well. And so and if you're here and you, you don't know Jesus, um, Hopefully, at least as you hear about this, you'll at least hopefully have a little bit of a greater and clearer window into why do we want to tell people who don't know Jesus about the good news? Uh, Christians always haven't, they haven't always been great at doing this, and um, you know, there's no excuse for that. But hopefully, you all see, like, why do we care so badly that other people know Jesus along with us? So um, as we look at this passage, uh, one of the ways to learn from a text is to ask good questions of the text. And so here's the three questions we'll look at in the text today and see what we learn. So first we'll look at, why does God bless Abraham? Okay, why does God bless Abraham? Second, we'll look at what kind of life does God call Abraham to? And then number three, what's the hope that God gives Abraham? So first, why, why does God bless Abraham? Second, what, what's the kind of life that God calls Abraham to? And then number three, what is the hope that God, that God gives Abraham. So first, number one, why does God bless Abraham? So this text is, it's kind of funny, and I mean that in a reverent way, uh, when, when it starts off in, in verse one. So the Lord, so Abraham, he's going about his day, and he, so Abraham, he's a, he's a wealthy man. He's part of a wealthy family in the ancient Near East, what would be now modern-day Iraq, actually. And so he's just, you know, going about his day, all is well, and then God shows up. Can you imagine, like, God shows up as you're on your way out the door? And what does God tell him? Because there's no preamble. God just gets right to business, and he says, go. Get out is, is one way you can translate it. So get out of your country, leave your kindred, leave your father's house, and go to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Okay, so God says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham. Now, if God shows up to you and says, I'm going to bless you, like, what do you think is about to happen? And, or like, what would be the purpose of being blessed by God? And so I, I was thinking about this, and so I, I went on Instagram, and I just did a search for, like, hashtag blessed to see, to see, like, what do other people think it means to be blessed? And, you know, why are you blessed? And I was just getting made fun of yesterday for not knowing how to use social media, so sorry if I don't use lingo correctly. But I looked it up, and so first of all, there's over 100 million posts on hashtag blessed, so that's remarkable. And so as I was scrolling through, here's what I saw. A lot of selfies, it's lots of selfies, hashtag blessed. A lot of um, like celebrations of good things happening. So people standing in front of a new home they just purchased, or people like celebrating a, a new career success. Or there are also a number of like people doing yoga poses in front of a sunrise or a sunset, you know, hashtag blessed. And what became very clear to me is that we view blessing, like, much like we do, much like we view all of life, and that's through a very me-centered lens, right? Because are, are those things, is, is buying a home, is a career success, is having a child, is taking a great vacation, are those blessings? Yes, absolutely. But I'd be curious to see, like, if you were to ask a lot of people, why do you receive those blessings? And at least just based on the pictures, it seems to be so that I can be happy. 
so that I can live a full life. But that's not what God tells Abraham, is that God says, I'm going to bless you. And then why? He says it right after, so that you will be a blessing to others. So I'm blessing you, not so that you can have a full life, but I'm blessing you so that you can be a blessing to other people. And we need to see this because when you survey the spiritual lives of a lot of Americans, uh, the common thread that you find is who God is or the reason for knowing him is really more often than not, not much more than a, a personal consultant. So he's there to go to when you're, you know, when you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Or so, so you need to pray, you know, to do well on a, on a job interview. Or something's going on with your health. So you've got to pray to him, you know, for those things. Or you need help with your anxiety. Now, does God care about those things? Yes, absolutely. But what we need to see is that one of the ways that you know you've met the real God, like the real God, as he's revealed himself in Scripture, and not just a figment of your imagination, is when you meet the real God, he destroys your what's-in-it-for-me mentality. Like, he destroys your consumer, what's-in-it-for-me approach to God. He's like a spiritual tornado. He, he meets you, and then he says, get out, so that you can be a blessing to others. It's, it's how he always works. And you say, okay, well, that's Abraham. You know, great father of the faith. Yes, yes, it is Abraham. But let's also look at a lot of other people. So Moses, for example. So Moses is walking around. He's shepherding his sheep. God appears to him in the burning bush. It was like, oh, whoa, hey, God. And what does God say? You know, he says a couple things. And then he says, go. Go to Pharaoh. I want to use you to help draw my people, the Israelites, out of slavery. It was like, but we just met. Can't we just get to know each other? He's, yes, we are going to get to know one another. But I want you to go. And I want you to know me as you're serving, being a blessing to other people. You see it all throughout the Old Testament. You see it with Jesus. Right? When Mary Magdalene is the first person to see the resurrected Jesus, she grabs him. And Jesus says, Mary, like, I'm, I'm ascending to go be with my father. Now go and tell others about me. And then in Acts chapter 1, after Jesus is raised from the dead and he's surrounded by, he, by his closest followers, he you know, they're expecting him to stay there and establish the kingdom right then and there. What does he say? He says, I'm going to be with my father, but I'm giving you power through the Holy Spirit. I want you to be my witnesses through the end of the earth, through the ends of the earth. And so just as you think about like, why do you know God? Does God care about your career? Does God care about your love life? Does God care about your aches and pains? You bet he does. But what God also says to you is he says, I care a lot about those things, but I want you to take your eyes off of yourself and think about living for something greater than your career, greater than your love life, greater even than your hurts and aches and pains. I want you to be on mission for me so that other people can be blessed, uh, most primarily through knowing Jesus, just as I first blessed you. And so just a couple quick applications here to think about applying this is, so first, as you think about, like, how do you approach your relationship with God, just think about your prayer life. So when you go to pray to God, and I hope you do, like, what do you mainly pray for? Is it just, you know, help me get through the day, help me to do X, Y, and Z? Those are good prayers. Like, you need to pray those things. But also just look at how often are you praying, Lord, help me to love my coworker today who's really hard to love, or my spouse who's really hard to love. Help me to share Jesus with this person who I have no idea how they're going to respond. 
versus like how do you view your relationship with God. And but the second application is for those of you who may feel distant from God. Um, so maybe you're in a stage of life where like you want God to feel more real to you, but he doesn't feel as warm to you or as exciting to you or as palpable to you as so many other things that, that capture your imagination and your vision, right? And now, there can be a lot of reasons why you can feel distant from God, but consider if one of the reasons why you could feel distant from God is because you're not following him as he's moving toward other people and wants you to go with him. Because what, what God promises, I mean, over and over in Scripture, is when you go to the mat for me, when you go on mission for me, like, there will be a deeper level of intimacy with me, and, and you will experience me in ways that you can't when you're just living for yourself. And as, a, as a quick example of this, so a lot of you are here, we had a, like a celebration dinner before our first service on Saturday, and Lisa, one of our community group leaders, she, you know, she stood up and she was sharing with, uh, with our church and with Portico Church, our sending church, about how her and her husband, Andrew, they knew that God was calling them to be a bit more outward focused than they had before. And he was calling them to be more present in the lives of their neighbors and their coworkers. One thing that we're really big about here in doxology is, are, are we active in the lives of our coworkers and our neighbors and being present with them? And like the essence of what she was saying is, she, you know, she just admitted, it was very honest. She said, in the beginning, we didn't really want to do it. We didn't feel like we had the margin for it. You know, we were nervous. But then it was, it was so fascinating what she said. Is she said, once we just started stepping out and doing it, God expanded our capacity to love. Um, God brought us deeper into his own heart. Because why? Because they were forced to depend on him in ways that they normally weren't. Because they were on mission for God, just as God is always moving toward other people. And ju I just want to encourage you all to, um, and I realize you might be in a hard place in life where you just feel like, I don't even feel like I have that much bandwidth to be thinking about other people on the time, all the time. Just one person. Just one person to be a little bit more present with and pray for God to use you in their life. Because God, God only blesses you to, to be a blessing to other people. That's why God blesses Abraham, to then bless others and then ultimately all the families of the earth. So number two, what kind of life does God call Abraham to? Basically says, here's why I'm blessing you. Now, what kind of lifestyle does that mean you're going to have to walk into? And when God says, I want you to leave your country, your kindred, your father's house, he's calling Abraham to essentially give up everything. So it's hard for us to think about how hard it would be to leave our family because in our Western individualistic climate, it's it's applauded and expected that you're going to, you know, move away from your family and form an identity for yourself. So it's hard to understand that Abraham was really giving up everything. Um, but just, I mean, as a imperfect parallel, imagine you've, you just found the, the greatest place to live. You got an amazing job with like a, a great boss, a great team. You're getting paid well. You're in an amazing church. And then God comes to you and says, I want you to move. Where? Uh, somewhere in the Saudi Arabian region, but I'll tell you once you get there. Like, mm, no thanks. You see, what God is telling Abraham in verse 3 when he says, through you I'm going to bless all the families of the earth, he's referring to Jesus Christ who's going to come, he's going to be born through the line of Abraham. He's saying, Abraham, you have a, an opportunity to literally be a part of blessing billions of people. But it's going to require you to disrupt your life to do it. And that's how it often works in God's economy. 
if we want to be a blessing to others, we, we have to be willing to lose to disrupt our lives. And so let's look at a number of ways that we can do that. And I want to start by first encouraging you guys in, in this way, because so a lot of you, a number of you here helped start doxology. Okay, so some of you left Portico, which was a more stable, more predictable church to help us start this church. Others of you who, knew, who were new who came after, so we were meeting in an office space uh, before we started here three weeks ago. A lot of others of you came after our first service, and the thing about showing up to a smaller, newer church plant is it's near impossible to hide, <laughs> and you know, you know you're going to be asked to get involved because it's an all-hands-on-deck thing to like keep everything up and running, but a lot of you joined and said, hey, like, how can I help? How can I jump in and be a part of this? And then a lot of you have joined even over, over the past couple weeks. And so first, I just want to say thank you uh, to all of you who are here and have, been, have sacrificed like a more predictable church and predictable lifestyle to help this thing get started. If you're new here, please come on in and join the party. And, and so that, that's, just, that's just how I want to start is by encouraging you all. Um, but we're always, we always want to drift towards self-centeredness. So let's just look at a couple ways that we can apply this idea of disrupting our own life in order to bring blessing to other people. So first, let's look at, like, what, do we, what are a few different corporate examples for us as a church? And one of the first ways we can think about being a blessing to others is in community groups and discipleship groups. So community groups here are, they're co-ed, they're larger, they meet twice a month, you share a meal, we talk about scripture together, and then we also have discipleship groups, which are smaller, same-gendered groups where people meet to study the Bible together. And the thing about these groups is, at first, they're often awkward, but then what happens is, as time goes on, they become pretty wonderful, Right, like you, you share things with the people in your group that you don't share with that many other people. You, you often cry with the people in your group. You laugh a lot with people in your group. But then what happens? Because in a healthy group, it grows and then it multiplies. Right, so often like half of you will go to start a new one. Why? So that other people can come in. And that's hard. And anytime it comes for a group to multiply, people resist. I mean, I resist. I don't want to do it. Why? Because it's like, we, we just got to the point where things felt finally smooth, where we're in a good groove with the people here. Like, I don't want it to end. I want it to be how it's always been. But if you stay there, now it's just a blessing to you, but it can't be a blessing to other people. And so for all of you who are in groups, just want to encourage you to think about why are we in this group? Yes, to care for one another, help one another experience Jesus, but also how can we pray for growth and then multiply so more people can experience Jesus? Okay, so that's one corporate example and just one other. Um, so just so you all know, so for us as a church, from the very beginning, we're committing over 10% of our budget as a church to support other church plants and gospel-centered ministries. And I don't say that as a, as a pat on the back, but I, I say that because it's very easy for a new church when you're this more, you know, it feels like you're this fragile little sapling and at any month, you know, like things could make you go under. We're in a good place, by the way. I'm not predicting doom. But what's easy as a new church is to say, well, let's care about ourselves first. Let's circle the wagons and go into survival mode. And then once we have enough money and we made sure, you know, we have enough staff salaries on board and we have all our operations covered, then we'll give to other people. But, you know, just as God calls individuals to give generously to their local church and other ministries, there, there's no clear imperative, you know, thou shalt a church give X amount of money to other people, but because it's such a clear principle throughout scripture that we need to give so that others can be blessed, our church is doing that. And so I'm, I want this to be an encouragement for those of you who are giving, to know that the money that you're giving, yes, it's playing a huge role in what's happening here, 
which I hope you're encouraged by, but also it's going toward very real people who are meeting Jesus and disciples who are being strengthened in this hard journey that's on earth in the, in the country and all throughout the world. And so that's just, that, that's another way corporately how we um, bless others just as we've first been blessed by God. And the final one I just want to look at, okay, so for you all as individuals, like how can you think about sharing the good news about Jesus or simply just being a blessing to other people as God has first blessed you in Jesus? And there's a lot of things we could talk about, but distilled it down to one thing. And so here's what I want you all to think about. So Abraham, he was called to leave his culture and go to a new culture where he was going to be a stranger. He was going to be very different from other people around him. And similarly with, with you all, when you come into union with Jesus, when you trust in Jesus, you all of a sudden start marching to the beat of a different drum than the rest of culture around you. Or at least you, you should, because Jesus calls you, in me, calls you in many ways to look very different than the culture around you. And so oftentimes when I'm talking with people about you know, witnessing, sharing the gospel, I hear something like, well, you know, I don't want to look weird. The thing is, Jesus says you're going to look weird. <laughs> okay, now not weird because you're creepy, but you're weird because there, there are things that Jesus calls you to that will be very different than the, than the way everybody else operates. When Jesus says, I want you to be the salt of the earth, so the reason why salt is beneficial to food is because salt is a different substance than the food it's being enmeshed in. Right, so in a similar way, if, if there isn't a particular strangeness about you that makes people kind of go, Huh? Then are you living as if Jesus has done what he's done? So as some concrete examples, do you gossip and talk badly about other people in the same way that is very common probably with your coworkers? Is it the same way you talk about political leaders? The same way that your friends and coworkers talk about them? Okay, do, you, do you view money in the same way that everybody else views it? Do you view the design and purpose for sex the same way that everybody else views it? Or is the way that you walk and live, does it make people go, what? why are you saying that or not saying that? And as an example of how powerful this can be, so I've seen this a number of times, but one of the first ways I saw it played out was, so with my older brother, his name's Mike, and I'm fortunate to have a great relationship with him, and he's a little older than me, and we went to the same high school. And now he, yeah, he had his flaws and, and still does, but, and he wasn't living like perfectly for Jesus when he was in high school, but he knew enough to know that Jesus should impact how he lives, and so he was, you know, he was in the inner ring, he was in a lot of popular circles in high school, and so one, I remember he told me this like right after it happened, but he, he goes to a party, okay, so there's this guy, uh, Nate Dappen's house, so he goes to this party, and, you know, the parents were out, and Mike walks in, and, you know, he would go to parties a lot, and, but he walks into this one, and, I mean, every type of, like, act of ill repute is taking place. So, you know, there are, um, we, have, we have kids in here, but there's, you know, there's things on the television, um, there's group activities taking place in another room, uh, there's a lot of hard drugs taking place, and it's like, you know, I could partake in this. Like, he had plenty of opportunities, but he said, I, I don't, I just, I don't think I can stay here. But he, he didn't want people to see him leave, 
So he, you know, he's in the basement. So he tries to sneak out the, the basement door so people don't ask him questions. <laughs> and, you know, they, like, they make fun of him. And, and so he, he scurries out the door. He's like, sweet, nobody saw me. And he, he's going up the grassy hill. And one of his uh, good friends named Jason was standing out there smoking a cigarette. He goes, hey, Mike, where are you going? Mike was like, oh, hey, Jason. Uh, and he says immediately he tried to think of, like, okay, what can I tell him I'm doing? He's like, oh, I'm going to, the, going to the supermarket. You know, you want, <laughs> you want me to pick you up something? And uh, Jason's like, no, I'm fine. Like, why are you leaving? And now Mike, he was often pretty socially adept, but every now and then his mind would go blank and he would say something kind of silly. And he just looked at Jason and he kind of stutters and he goes, I just feel like I need to go be with Jesus. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> I mean, is that being on mission? Kind of, but I mean, that, that's, that's such a, a weird, like, how do you even respond to that? And his friend just kind of looked at him, and Mike just, you know, he quickly scurries up the hill, and he gets in his car and, and drives away, just feeling, you know, utterly ashamed, so embarrassed. But here's what happened. Three years later, he's sitting in his dorm room in college, and he gets a letter, a three-page letter from this same guy, Jason, he says, Mike, this was before, you know, like text messaging and stuff. He says, Mike, ever since I saw you that night at Nate's house, he says, I've been pestered every single night that you were leaving behind what I counted as everything to me. Like, to me, that was life at the highest, and I knew that you could have had it too, you know, with your looks and your reputation and all those things. And when I asked you why you were leaving, you, you said the answer was Jesus. <laughs> As if he was actually better. Can we talk about that? You see, the, the reason why he asked him was because he, he, he used the words, it was so strange to me. And so if you're not strange, right, in the right ways, why are people going to ask you any questions about the God you follow? And so God is not asking you when you're, in friendship with those who don't know Jesus, he's not asking you to be an eloquent philosopher who can answer impeccably all the questions that you get. All he's asking you to do is just be regularly present and live life among those who don't know Jesus and just in the process, don't hide how much Jesus means to you. And when you get questions, you, you're not gonna have every answer, but all you have to do is just point to the one thing you can't deny and that's an empty tomb. And how does it change your life? And how can it change their life? It'll be, it'll, it'll be a wonderful thing if our church, both when we gather here and when, when we're scattered th throughout the week, that there's something about how we live and how we speak that makes people go, that's kind of weird, but people ask questions just like they did with Jesus himself. So that's how God calls Abraham to live, to, um, to disrupt his own life so that others can have blessing and also to, to be a stranger in a lot of ways, just to testify to the God that he knows. 
Okay, so finally we'll look at what is the hope that God gives Abraham? So we see this in chapter 11. Some of you are probably wondering, okay, why are we reading that genealogy? Okay, that's there in beginning in verse 27 uh, before we get to chapter 12. And so there's always a reason why the biblical author will include something like that. And the reason why the author includes this genealogy in Genesis chapter 11 is because what Genesis 1 to 11 is about is essentially it's about the humanity's downward spiral into greater and greater darkness. And it's just one horrible and violent decision after the next. And so what happens when you come to the end of Genesis 11, essentially what you see when you read the narrative is there's one final little family tree who knows God. Like everyone else has abandoned God. And it's this little family tree that that Abraham's in. So it's almost like they're the last little candle of hope for people who know God, for people to tell others about God. But it's, it's pretty bleak because, so we're told that Abraham's father's name is Terah, and we're told elsewhere in scripture, so Joshua 24 is a place, where we're told that, so Terah, um, um, Abraham's father, he had actually started worshiping other idols. Terah means moon. And so he had fallen into idol worship. Uh, one of Abraham's brothers died, okay, Haran. And Abraham, so he has a wife named Sarah, but she is barren. So in a spiritual sense, it looks like all hope is lost you know, for the world to know God, but also in a very physical sense, it looks like all hope is lost because Sarah's barren. She can't have a child. And so it's like, what is going to happen amid this darkness? And what happens is, is God speaks. He says, Abraham, if you leave behind what's familiar and comfortable and you go to a land, you don't know where it is yet, I will use you to bless all the families of the earth. And Abraham went even though he, he didn't have many answers. And Abraham ended up fathering Isaac, who fathered Jacob, who fathered Judah, who fathered Perez, who eventually many generations down the line fathered King David, who fathered Solomon. Then many generations down the line through a lot of failures and a lot of train wrecks, a guy named Joseph was born. And Joseph was betrothed to a woman named Mary. And Mary was approached by an angel who told her Mary, you are going to be blessed with a son. You shall call this his name Jesus because he's going to save people. He's going to save the world from their sins. Mary walks in obedience and Jesus, God himself, comes into the world and lives for you and dies for you and rises again for you. And then in Acts chapter one, the resurrected Jesus, he, he appears to a group of very uncertain and fearful men and women and they want him to stay. And he tells this uncertain, fearful group of men and women, I want you, I'm going to empower you by my Holy Spirit, and I want you to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And here's what I want you to see. When Jesus said, I want you to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, he's talking about you. He's talking about me. Like when Jesus says, I want you to be a part of my unstoppable, all-encompassing mission to declare my glory and my gospel throughout the world, he had Arlington, Virginia with Doxology Church planted in, in 2019 in mind. And so if, if you're here and you know Jesus, or you're here and you're even hearing the message about Jesus, it's because that group of uncertain men and women were willing to step out into a culture that did not understand them and did not agree with them. And through the Holy Spirit, just testify 
to their crucified and resurrected Savior. And so here's, here's the point. I, I want you all to see when it, it's so, I, I don't know. I don't know about you all, but talking with some of you, I, I think it can be so hard when you think about sharing about Jesus with other people, especially in the cultural moment that we're in. Like we're just, a lot of people aren't very interested. And a lot of you I know have tried to share the gospel with other people and it's just kind of bounced off and it hasn't really gone well. But what, what Jesus Christ is promising is he's saying, when you go all in on me, when you go to the mat for Jesus, when you risk your reputation for Jesus, when you put your time and your energy on the line for Jesus Christ, you are not putting your hope in a lost cause. You're not putting your hope in a lost cause. That's what we see here in Genesis chapter 12. Because God loves his church. He's committed to his church. He's died for his church. And there's no greater blessing than Jesus Christ. Because any other blessing that you get in this world can be taken away from you. Right? Illness will come. Grief will come. Loss will come. Jesus is the only one who cannot be taken away. Jesus says, and God says, so don't hope in your eloquence or your abilities, but hope in me, who's absolutely committed to redeeming those who don't know me. And just go out and testify to the goodness of who I am. So let's be a church who, as we've first been blessed, let us be a blessing to other people, disrupting our lives so that other people can know God, and just simply living as strangers as we are and telling other people about who it is that we love and serve. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for recording this small episode in Genesis for us about how from the very beginning uh, you've set your eyes on us and you've wanted people of all nations and colors and socioeconomic statuses to know you. And I pray that that will uh, delight us in a way that it hasn't before, and I pray that you will help us to be witnesses to you in the very um, imperfect ways that we are, but we ask that you will do a great work through this church and all the other churches in this area and throughout the world. Um, Thank you so much for who you are, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.